listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly masterclass interviews on topics to help you make your first or next step in business the right one. I'm your host, Alex Sanfilippo. According to Harvard Business, more than 75% of startups fail, but your venture does not have to be part of this statistic. The focus of this podcast is always to help you make that first or next step in your business the right one. So to help ensure that this happens, today's guest is Tom Eisenman. Tom has been a Harvard Business School professor for the last 24 years. During this time, Tom has guided over 1,000 Harvard Business students and alumni as they launch their new ventures, including Stitch Fix, Cloudflare, and Oscar Health. However, along with these many successes, Tom has seen his share of failures. For this reason, Tom wrote the book titled, Why Startups Fail. In this book, he does a deep dive into the most common reasons for startup failure, which is a topic that most have never covered. For resources that we mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 090. And now get ready to learn how to avoid some of the most common failures in startups. Here is my conversation with Tom Eisenman. Tom, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. So excited to have you here with us today. Alex, great to be here. Thank you very much. Definitely. You know, your publicist sent me a pre-release copy of your book and I got about halfway through the introduction. I closed the book, emailed her back saying I had to have you on as a guest. That's how quick I was able to tell that, that you're going to be a great fit for this show. I love it. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, it's really rare that we f- I find somebody that quick that I just know has a topic that's so important to the audience here at Creating a Brand. But this is a book that just really, that really spoke to me right away. I knew that this would be something we had to cover because we just haven't really found people on this. And with that said, it's not really a topic that's been widely covered. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, you know, I, I looked for um, books written for managers, by managers, by investors, by entrepreneurs. Uh, and by academics, and there's some stuff out there, but a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the best stories are of individuals, individual companies, individual ventures that fail uh, by the first person accounts, and uh, and there's a lot to learn from that. But but um, I think what the book does is it um, connects the dots across a lot of different kinds of stories, and, and still finds some patterns that apply um, to lots of different kinds of, of new ventures. You're definitely the right guy to cover this with your experience. Uh, and I was listening to actually, it was one of your fellow professors at Harvard Business School. I quoted them just saying that they had this about 75% of venture-backed startups fail, which I guess it's even more if it's somebody who's bootstrapping or just doing something on them themselves with like their own funding, right? I, I think that's right. I think if you, I mean, when you ask about startup failure rates, you, you have to both define what do you mean by startup um, and what do you mean by failure? Because um, n- neither term, professors love to define things, but neither term is really that clear. I mean, some people think of, of an entrepreneur as any owner of a business. Some people think of entrepreneurs as, as anybody who runs a small business. Um, you know, the, 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 um, the, the definition that um, I use in the book and we use at school is an, an entrepreneur is somebody who's doing something new um, with limited resources at the start. Right. You, 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 you don't have the team. You don't have the money. Um, you may not have the customers or even the reputation. And uh, and that covers a lot of ground. Right. Something new without resources. Um, you, you see it um, for sure with every kind of startup. Um, every bootstrapper, by definition, is doing that. Um, but you see it, too, in big companies and government agencies and not for profits and so forth. So entrepreneurship's all over the place. And then failure is also a slippery term, right? Does the thing have to literally shut down, go bankrupt, go out of business? Um, Definition I use in the book is um, if you raised outside money uh, and those original investors 
either didn't get their money back or just never will, to me, that's a failure. Um, and there are, other, there are other ways we could define failure. For a bootstrapper, it's a, it's a different story. A bootstrapper puts in their sweat equity, right? Sort of, they could have been earning a salary, um, so they've, they've foregone some salary, and they often put in personal savings. And so if you'd never get back the personal savings and you never get back the money that you could have earned on another job, uh, then in a sense, you failed. I mean, you may have met a lot of your goals, and that's important too. And you may have contributed something fantastic for society and not made money, and that's important too. So, so anyway, by any reasonable definition, um, I, I think the vast majority of startups fail, which is which is why it's important to ask: Are there ways to avoid it? And, and if you are going to fail, and a lot of, you know, if we're going to try new things without resources, failure is inevitable. Uh, in, in, in fact, in some ways, a good thing. But, you know, let's fail well. Let's fail in ways that are smart and, and preserve relationships and preserve integrity and reputations and so forth. I'm glad that you gave us the the definition of an entrepreneur, the definition of failure. And going back to the whole point, if, if 75% or more fail, it's interesting that there's so many books about succeeding, right? Instead of about failure when 75% of the time or more, that's actually the case. So again, covering a great topic here. I'm really excited for creating a brand to be able to hear this because I know it's gonna be very valuable for all of us. I had some immediate takeaways from the book, some things that really spoke to me already that I've implemented. So I'm looking forward to that happening for the audience as well. So today we're going to cover three distinct patterns that account for the vast majority of new startup failure. You've titled these in your book, Bad Bedfellows, False Starts, and False Positives. Let's go ahead and kick this off by talking about the first way that you find that new startups fail, which is what you call bad bedfellows. I, I got going on this research. I really started to teach entrepreneurship. I mean, I've been teaching it in one way or another for 24 years, but a lot of what I did for the first 10 years was strategy, sort of high, um, if you're going to run a platform, um, how should you price to the customers and, and how fast should you grow and things like that, important stuff. Um, but I never really got into the guts of, of how, as an entrepreneur, you figure out if you've got a good idea, mobilize the resources and get the thing started. And uh, once I did, um, I, uh, I could pretty quickly, this is right around the same time that the lean startup movement was taking off. I'm, I'm sure your, your, your listeners will be familiar with Eric Reese and Steve Blank and this notion that we should test assumptions rigorously, fast, but rigorous test. And, and um and so I taught a lot of that and um, sort of pushed those ideas um, in, into, uh, into the curriculum at Harvard Business School as fast and hard as I could and um, watched one of my teams. This, this was a, um, a, um, a pair of, 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 of female student, former female students who wanted to start an apparel company. And the idea was uh, they were both having a hard time finding clothes for work. So they wanted to get better fitting um, stylish and affordable um, uh, apparel for for young professional women for themselves, essentially, which is a lot of entrepreneurs sort of scratch their own itch. And um, and they did a textbook perfect minimum viable product following all the lean start all the lean startup ideas. Um, they ran a trunk show. If, if any of your listeners are sort of in the apparel business, it's just what it sounds like. You bring the samples in a trunk and people try them on. And then they got fantastic orders, which validated minimum viable product style demand for this concept they had. So they had a good idea and they raised some money, um, launched the business and, um, and they did, in fact, have pretty strong demand. The business grew, repeat purchases and so forth. So concept good, good idea. But um, the business failed in less than a year, 
and it failed. You know, you'll hear a lot of investors um, talk about jockey and horse, jockey being the founders, horse being the idea. So we had a pretty good horse here, um, but but um, it's it's easy to quickly pin the blame on the founders. But but what I actually discovered in this case with this company, Quincy Apparel, um, was the failure was due not only to some shortcomings of the founders. Um, they were smart. Um, one of them was charismatic, sort of the classic outside force of, of the founding team, sort of presenting the company to the world. The other was the classic insider, sort of uh, disciplined, attent attentive to um, attentive to operations. And um, but um, they couldn't figure out who was the boss, so they fought over that. And neither of them had ever actually worked in apparel design or manufacturing before. So they went out and hired some people who had to, and, and it turns out apparel manufacturing and design has all these specialized tasks, the fabric cutter, the fabric sourcer, quality control and so forth. And they got people who had done one of those jobs in some other, usually a bigger company. And those folks just weren't suited to startup life, right? Where everybody sort of pitches in jack of all trades, you sort of shift around wherever the fire is burning um, brightest. And, and, um, and, and so the attitude, the skills were there, but the attitude was all wrong. And they, at the same time, they outsourced manufacturing to factories, which is pretty common for apparel startups. And the factories didn't pay any attention to them because they didn't have industry reputations. And they were small and their orders had, were, had quirky attributes. And the investors um, they recruited who they thought actually knew something about apparel turned out to not and not to be big enough investors um, to bridge them when they when they got into trouble. Right. It's very often a case an entrepreneur gets into trouble and the existing investors will sort of throw them a lifeline. And, and these investors were neither able nor willing to do that. So I call that whole constellation of problems with every type of resource they, they had to pull together to make the venture work. The founders, the team, the investors, the partners, um, there were problems on all of those fronts. And it, and it turns out you see that's a that, that, that's a. Um, a, a, a typical pattern and a heartbreaking pattern, right? Because you got a good idea, but you just can't get the, the big T team, the entire team together to, to make it work. Yeah, no, I think that that's a, that's a really good point that it's it's about having the right people in your corner. But that is really tough to know at times. Like, obviously, they, they thought they were doing the right thing. What advice would you give to somebody who's getting started, maybe looking at a potential partnership? Like, how do you how do you kind of mitigate this risk a little bit here? Yeah. So, so in their case, um, you know, it turns out that um, domain experience, industry experience, is just much more important in some businesses than others. I mean, a lot of the um, web or mobile or software-based businesses that 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 my students launch, it's not it's not that important. I mean, they can sort of figure out who the target customer is and what they need, and 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 create a product that meets it. But it turned out in apparel design and manufacturing. Boy, um, it's the stuff is just. There's a reason why no one was making better fitting women's clothing. I mean, if you think about women's clothing, it comes in size six, size ten. You know, men's suiting has. This is actually what Quincy did. They did multiple measures, just like men's suiting, chest and sleeve length and so forth. And um, and, and it turns out to pull that off to actually make the stuff, you, you need to really understand. Um, all sorts of the, the um, ins and outs of apparel manufacturing. They had a lining for their jackets that when somebody perspired, it bled um, pink dye, you know, which was a disaster. And like somebody on their team should have known that that was going to happen. 
um, one of the founders was the fit model for the jackets and um, she had really thin wrists. And so they used her and so <laughs> most of the women couldn't actually put their hands through through the sleeves and so forth. It's just a lot of little things like that and some very big things. So you need to know as an entrepreneur, whether you're in a business where domain experience matters. And if it does and you don't have it, I mean, you can spend the next five years trying to go out and get it. That's, you know, most entrepreneurs are going to be too impatient to do that. So you can look for a co-founder and they tried uh, to, the, to their credit. They tried and failed. Um, you can surround yourself with advisors and mentors. You can pick investors who, who really know the ropes. Uh, and then also this, this issue they had over um, who's the boss, um, who's, who's going to really be the CEO making the decisions. That's just, that's a classic problem for co-founding teams, sort of not wanting to have that tough decision. You know, the MBAs I work with, you know, they all want to be the boss and, and, and they're constantly fighting with each other over, over who's going to be CEO. And you just have to have that decision up front or it'll fester and, 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 and cause bigger problems down the road as it did for Quincy. Um, and then with the team, you know, again, this is something you could do about, they hired for skill because they knew they, they themselves didn't have the skills but always as, as an entrepreneur, you've got to be thinking about the balance of skill and attitude. You know, does this, is this person going to be suited to startup life? And, um, and there are ways to, to test for that. And I mean, best way to test for it is if they've ever actually experienced it and do they, were they good at it and do they like it? But, you know, just to find out how, how somebody has the roles they played on teams. And if, if, if the universe throws them a loop, um, how, how did they respond? So, so they could have done a better job of recruiting. They could have done a better job of, of sorting through the founder team issues. Um, the investors, you know, um, again, a lot of my MBAs just sort of assume the only money in the world um, comes from venture capitalists. And, and um, uh, that's wrong. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of money out there. Right. And um, venture capital brings um, some wonderful things. I mean, they've got terrific experience, but their model is basically, you know, one in 20, 10 of the investments is going to make a lot of money and seven out of 10 are going to lose everything. And then the rest in the middle are going to be okay. And, and you know, and they make enough money on, on the three out of 10 to cover the losses on the seven out of 10. But because of that model, they're just constantly pushing entrepreneurs to swing for the fences and, um, apparel design and manufacturing is not a place where you want to try to do hyper growth and 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 quincy's investors were pushing them for hyper growth so they should have taken money turns out that apparel factories will back um, entrepreneurs and and that would have been a much smarter place to go get money and then just you know if they were going to take money from from the kinds of angels and vc investors that they did they should have done more diligence to figure out what the people actually knew and and would they be willing to bridge to, to throw them a lifeline and they got in trouble and then the factory problem, the partner problem is a tricky one. I mean, every entrepreneur has a megaphone, uh, social media and so forth. And if somebody is um, pushing you to the back of the line when a bigger order comes in, um, you know, you can complain publicly and not, not everybody wants that kind of publicity. I mean, the, the extreme solution would be to bring them in as an equity partner. Um, that's risky because, um, you know, you, you can't divorce, right? Once somebody is on... Um, is, is an investor in your company, they're with you for a long time. So, so anyway, those are some of the things um, that you can do. But the key thing, I think, for, for the listeners is to, to think about whether you're in the kind of business where actually knowing a lot of the details of, of how to succeed in a business like this is crucial. And, and, and a lot of Quincy's problems, I think, could be traced to the founder's lack of domain expertise. 
Hey, Alex Sanfilippo here, and I want to take a quick moment to intentionally serve the world with you. Here's what I want you to do. Think of the one person you know who would most benefit from listening to this episode today. Now, I want you to send it to them, but also include an encouraging note explaining why you share this episode with them specifically. By doing this, you're helping me grow this podcast, and you're also adding value to the people you care about. With that said, thank you for your continued support. It means the world to me. And now, let's get back to today's episode. It's a great point. I'm glad that you use this real life example. And I know that you get into it in the book as well, and you have even more detail there, but I think it really sends it home for the people listening today, for our listeners creating a brand, this tribe. This is really helpful when we have a story like this. So I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation here, moving into the second point is what you call false starts. Yeah, this, this is um, um, the other big pattern. I, I, and um, false starts sort of think of track and field or swimming or, or, um, or auto racing where somebody jumped, literally jumps the gun, right? Gets going um, on a race be, before um, they should and gets penalized for that. And, and the way the false start plays out um, with new ventures is the entrepreneur um, has burning bright in their head, a, a vision for the problem they're gonna work on and the solution and builds it and launches it and then um, is uh, disappointed and surprised to find out that that thing that they just built and spent all the money selling or marketing uh, isn't really what the world wanted. And um, then you pivot, of course, you know, if you sort of learn from that feedback, you can you can change the product, you can change the business model, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is that first chunk of time and an entrepreneur only has so much time um, if they're working, uh, if they're bootstrapping and working off of personal savings or if they raise money from outside. Same thing. Same thing in either case, like you just only have as much time as, as you have money. And um, if you find yourself in trouble, you're not going to be able to get more money or raise more money. And um, and if you waste a third of it on on a false start on on a bad first version of the product, um, even if you can adapt, you, you sort of really in increase your risk of failure, right? Just because, I mean, Eric Reese, the guy behind Lean Startup, defines runway. Runway um, usually is defined as how many months a if you look at the cash in the bank and the the rate at which you're burning cash, how many months are left. And, and, and that's a good definition, but Reese um, uses a different definition of runway. He says, how many more pivots can you do? And um, if, if you um, have one version of the product that's just fundamentally flawed because you didn't do your homework up front, which turns out to be the cause, uh, you've wasted a pivot. And so instead of having three pivots, you've now got two. And, you know, if it takes three tries to, to get the thing right, um, you may not make it. So, so the so the so the classic cause here is um, is the right in the DNA of an entrepreneur. It's basically like bias for action. Entrepreneurs are people who do stuff, and um, what could be better to do than build the product and get it out there? And right. actually, the rhetoric of lean startup encourages this. Right, fail fast. You know, um, um, launch early and often. You know, these are the mantras of the lean startup movement. And um, there's a lot of wisdom in all that, but um, there's another thing in Lean Startup where um, basically the, the gurus will tell you to get out of the building before you start building and really understand the target customer and the problem that you're trying to solve. You know, and, and, and Steve Blank, um, Reese's mentor, will tell you to go do 100 interviews. And, and um, 
And, and to an entrepreneur who thinks they see the solution, that can feel like a waste of time. Um, and in um, and, and the, the sort of touchstone case in the book, which is about a failed online dating site, the entrepreneur was an engineer. Well, who loves to build stuff? Engineers. Right. Um, so, so if you got an engineer who's an entrepreneur, you, you, you got a bias for action. You got somebody who loves to build. They're going to start building. And that's what, that's what they did. But even with non-technical founders, I mean, a lot of my MBAs um, can't build stuff. They're not engineers, but they're really good at networking. Um, and, and they hear over and over again correctly that to succeed as an entrepreneur, you need a great product. So how do you get a great product? You go find people who can build it for you. And sometimes they're employees and they're expensive because good engineers are, are expensive. And once they're on board, you put them to work building stuff. Sometimes they're co-founders. And once they're on board, you, you, like, you leverage what they're good at, which is building stuff. So both non-technical founders and technical founders are vulnerable to this false start. And it really just comes from impatience to, to get started. So, um, you know, this is where I think um, your listeners who are in a gig, like got a paying job, but they're thinking about whether to take the plunge, you know, the advice for a lot of them would be, you know, pause and ask, really, do you understand uh, what it takes to succeed in, in, in the business you're targeting? Um, is there more you can learn about the customers? And the this, this stuff is just the classic, um, um, let's interview customers. And, and, and a classic mistake entrepreneurs make when they interview customers is they start pitching, right? Because that's what entrepreneurs do. They're great at selling, they pitch. Um, and there's a time for that. And it's a really important skill to have. But what's much more important up front is listening, sort of listening for unmet needs and um, not asking leading questions and, and not hearing what you want to hear. I mean, so many entrepreneurs will, um, you know, they get a vision for the future and they just filter out any, any signals that sort of say that their, their vision's wrong. I've so, been guilty of tunnel vision myself. So. <laughs> we all We all do. So, so that's the false start. It's, it's basically um, skipping the upfront research, not really testing a minimum viable product um, and just sort of plunging in. And, you know, despite everything we've learned about how important it is to do that upfront research, that upfront testing, plunging in and wasting a cycle on, on, a, on, a, on a flawed product. Yeah, we'll kind of circle back to this point because number three here that I want to get into kind of plays right off of that, which is false positives. I'd love to hear your take on that because I, I do think they really go together, right? Yeah, the um, boy. Um, so, um, if, if your listeners have been exposed to medicine, I mean, I, I guess we we all um, through COVID have learned yes, a lot about have. false positives and false negatives. So I don't I don't think I have to explain <laughs> it to anybody. But the the, the news is um, the concept of false positives and false negatives is not just related to COVID testing. Um, it actually applies to startups too, and um, um, what you. Um, I mean, it's interesting to actually ask which is worse for an entrepreneur, a false positive or a false negative, like false negative. Um, you think the world's telling you you got a bad idea, but you actually have a good one and you may pull the plug on a good thing and it'll never see the light of day because you threw in the towel um, for the wrong reasons. Um, but the false positive is also pretty um, potentially deadly, um, which is you think you got a good idea you build and expand in the direction of that idea, which turns out to be flawed. And, um, you know, by the time you figured out that it's flawed, you may have uh, recruited the wrong team. You may have um, invested a lot of energy in building a brand that once you have to pivot away from the flawed idea is gonna confuse your customers, is gonna confuse your partners and so forth. 
so um, so 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 that's that's the basic pattern. And and the um, the touchstone case, the anchor case in the book is uh, it's a uh, a fascinating story. Baru, um, when a dog tilts its head to listen to you, um, try to figure out what you're saying. That's a Baru. It's it's like the coolest name for a startup I've ever heard. So Baru was pet care service, essentially a dog walking service, like if, if you know Wag and Rover. Um, but the hook was they were going to market through luxury apartment buildings. So so somebody new moves into the building, the concierge in the building says, hey, we got this dog walking service. And, and the false positive for Baru was their very first building was um, the Ink Block, which is this gigantic condo complex in South Boston, a trendy sort of millennial neighborhood. And it had been the um, it had been the offices and printing facilities of, of the Boston Herald newspapers, gigantic building, 400 units. Um, and it had just been converted. So literally everybody moved in at the same time. A bunch of the tenants were um, movie crew in from Hollywood, like on a gigantic per diem, um, working 15 hour days with a lot of money to spend. And they brought their pets because they were going to be there for months and months. So they needed pet care. And everybody else in the building was brand new, sort of moving either from some other part of town or from out of town. So they didn't have a dog walker. And um, the winter they launched, um, this is just astonishing. Um, Mother Nature dumped eight feet of snow on Boston in less than 30 days. It was the classic winter of 2015. I'm glad to live in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, if you had a dog, you were happy to have somebody who could actually come and walk it. So their first building, they just blew the doors off things. I mean, huge demand. And all around town, other buildings heard about this fantastic new service. So they, you know, like, let us sign up too. And so they had fantastic early demand. But it turns out, you know, most apartment buildings only turn out about turn over about a quarter or a third of their tenants every year. So if you're in the building already, um, you probably have a solution to your dog walking problem and you don't need Baru. So the, the, the demand was much slower to materialize in other buildings that they signed up. Um, but they'd already um, by the time they figured that out, they'd sort of blasted out and they were expanding too aggressively and and uh, and couldn't pull it back in time, ran out of money. It, you know, for me personally, with Podmatch, it's, it's my business and my SaaS company. You're familiar with it. False starts, having a false start and false positive is something that I struggle with a little bit. I decided to launch too soon because I got some false positives. And what I mean by that is the early adopters of Podmatch were they're they're more powerful than my power users today. Let's put it that way. So I way overproduced the product with my developer, who's my co-founder. And we just added too much functionality. And here we are at the one year mark of having the original idea where I, I talked to these hundred people, realizing now that they weren't quite right. We're actually in the process of removing a couple of the features because for the normal person, it's just too much for them now. Alex, that is just so classic. That is the classic false positive. And this is really important for, for everybody to understand is every business has early adopters. Um, and... Um, their needs are often different than the, the, we'll call them the mainstream, the folks that come on, on board later. Um, and every entrepreneur needs the early adopters, right? If you don't get the early adopters, you don't have any business at all. So you got to meet their needs. But um, if the needs of the mainstream are quite different than the early adopters, then you have these tricky choices. You could uh, create two versions of the product, you know, sort of pro and basic, if you will. That for an entrepreneur with limited resources is is a lot to ask. It's it's um, 
it, it, it's a it's a tricky thing because you got to brand two things and you got two feature sets and so forth and just product development gets so much more complicated. You can just um, build something for the mainstream and then um, assume that it's so much better than other solutions out there that the sophisticated early adopters will embrace it. That's actually what Dropbox did. Like if you if you think about um, Dropbox. It's incredibly easy to use and figure out. Their first customers were Uber geeks, like you know, incredibly sophisticated people, the, the folks who um, who um, don't have any trouble figuring out how to sort of use a new application. But they deliberately held back features that would be super appealing to the sophisticated early adopters and just and, and created a product for the mainstream. And in fact, it was so much better than the other stuff out there that the early adopters did come on board and they became wonderful apostles sort of it became unpaid customer service and, and and marketing arms and so forth and then the third thing you can do is um is um build a product for which is, i think sounds like what you're doing build a product for the early adopters and and then migrate over time you know sort of um submerge the sophisticated features sort of put them put them a a, a, a page or two inside you know sort of click click on a tab and you can find the sophisticated stuff so, but the key thing is to avoid the getting killed by a false positive. Um, it's really, really important again to do that upfront research to understand the difference in needs between the early adopters and the mainstream, and then have a strategy for coping with it. I have to say, thanks to you, my next startup is going to be really successful. I think that Podmatch yeah. is going the right direction, but next time around, I've been helped a lot now. I could have used you about a year ago, but I Thank am you. glad to have this today. And I know this is great for the audience. So that kind of concludes the first section of your book. You have broken into three different parts. Yeah. And the second part we're not going to get into today, but I encourage the listeners to grab a copy of this book because you get into scaling, which is really important. Too many of us prematurely scale, and we could talk about that for hours probably. But I want to jump down to this last part, which is failing. Because at some point, it's going to happen to a lot of us, unfortunately. It doesn't mean we're a failure, but we might fail in what we're doing today. I want to talk to about what you mentioned at the beginning, which is how you can prevent hurting relationships and save your integrity and your reputation during something if you are going to fail. Yeah. So so um, uh, one of the things that stands out, you know, I've interviewed dozens of, of failed entrepreneurs and, and, and in many cases, they're investors about the experience. And a lot of the entrepreneurs told me they wish that they had pulled the plug sooner, that they they ran the thing too long beyond the point, I mean, beyond the point of of reasonable hope that that there was going to be a turnaround. And when you start to um, peel apart why people would do that, um, there there's some pretty compelling reasons why an entrepreneur is going to take too long to figure out whether it's time for a shutdown. I mean, one is just that there's there's actually a whole rhythm to to the moves that lead up to the shutdown. You know, you, you will often um, try to raise more money um, from new investors. They don't think you've got enough traction to to put the money in. Um, a lot of the entrepreneurs then try to sell the business. You know, because there's there's something there. Um, there's often a pivot that they try late in the game. The problem with a late pivot is, is this runway problem is you, you may not have enough cash left in the bank to sort of see if the pivot's actually working. And, um, and then there's cost cutting and, you know, and, and, and that sort of starts, that takes some time to play out and sort of see if you've stabilized the thing. So it just takes time to, to try all those moves. When the entrepreneur is out of moves, then um, there's still some pressures on her to, to, um, to, to figure out like, should I keep going? I mean, the, the definition of an entrepreneur is persistence, right? So a good entrepreneur is persistent. Yeah. We hear these stories about 11th hour rescues, you know, turnarounds and so forth. 
So like if, if I pull the plug, maybe I'm not a great entrepreneur. And what does that say about my, my, my self-image? Um, and so that's there. There's just a bunch of people counting on you, right? There's people who work for you, who get their medical benefits because of the thing you built. And, you know, if you shut it down, they're going to they're going to be out looking for a job. And, and you know, if that person's about to have a baby. Um, what does that mean? So that's a reason the investors who believed in you sort of put money behind you. Um, that's that's a pretty big reason. Um, it, it's also true that a lot of entrepreneurs just don't have anybody they can talk to about this, right? If you're actually candid with people inside the company uh, about the struggle, um, then they may say, Oof, you know, like, um, th this is not going anywhere. Um, and, and I better get out of here before, it, you know, before I don't get a paycheck. Um, you know, so you can risk employees leaving, you can scare off investors if you're trying to get them to put more money into. So a lot of entrepreneurs are constantly, how's it going? It's going great, even if it's not going great. Yeah, and that means, um, you know, it's pretty limited. And by this point, if you're in a relationship, the partner in a relationship is probably tired of listening to this because you've been working 80, 90 hours a week. Um, and so there's often just nobody to talk to. And, and, and that makes it harder to make the decision. So um, uh, one, one of the big choices an entrepreneur in this has to make is whether to run the bank balance down to zero, hoping for a miracle, you know, hoping the pivot will work, hoping a new investor will come out of the woodwork or shut down in time for a graceful, what I would call a graceful shutdown, which, which is um, we can define as people who are owed money get paid back the money, employees, if customers have placed deposits, they get the deposit refunded. Um, if vendors have sent you stuff um, and, and they're owed money, the vendors get paid. Not necessarily the investors, right? Because, you know, especially if they're equity, the bank will expect to be paid if it's a bank loan, but equity investors kind of know that um, it's equity and, it, and it's some fraction of the time it's not going to work. So graceful shutdown doesn't necessarily imply giving the investors back all their money. They'd obviously like it, but 10 cents on the dollar would be better than nothing. And so um, entrepreneur really needs to know what kind of contractual commitments they've got and, and, and have, and have um, super tight control over cash in, in, in the end game so that they can figure out whether to do a graceful shutdown. There are big advantages um, to a graceful shutdown in terms of if we look forward. Um, but, but, the, but the rhythm of what happens then, so you shut down, there's actually this period of several weeks um, where there's just a ton of stuff happening, right? You know, you're down to just yourself in a lot of cases, or, you know, it's a tiny skeleton fraction of the original team. And so there's still a lot to do. You know, you got to figure out whether to put money in escrow and you're, you're filling out state forms and there's taxes to pay and there's a bunch of activity. And that actually can keep the entrepreneur distracted. There's just so much to do that they're not going to ruminate on the failure. But um, after a couple of weeks, that settles down and suddenly, like you're living with yourself and this failure and an entrepreneur whose entire self image is wrapped up in the venture. The venture is them. They are the venture. It's fail. So I mean, there's no escaping the fact that the entrepreneur has failed. You know, they, they are a failure and, um, and it hurts. Right. And, and people have different reactions to, to the pain. Um, some of them, um, go into complete denial. Um, 
why did why did my venture fail? My co-founder dropped the ball, um, lost interest, whatever. My team didn't do a good job. My investors pushed me to grow too fast. Um, the, you know, the bank got skittish and pulled the loan um, before they really should have. And uh, some of that may be true, um, but it, it's easy to blame other people in the universe for the misfortune. Right. I mean, there, there's a um, and at the other extreme, some some entrepreneurs take it too far in the other direction, namely, like. I screwed that up. I'm just hopelessly ill-suited to be an entrepreneur. I never should have done it, and I certainly should never do it again. And that's probably wrong, too. And both those types of entrepreneurs are going to get themselves into trouble in the future. The ones who um, think they didn't do much wrong are probably going to saddle up and you know, basically um, ride the horse over the cliff probably exactly the same way again. Right. And the ones who think they did everything wrong when they didn't, um, are, are not going to try again. And like the world has been deprived of a thing that they could bring to us. And, and that's sad, right? Because and there's so much to gain from society and so much for the entrepreneur to gain um, from, from, from creating something. So, you know, the challenge for an entrepreneur is to find some space in the middle. I mean, some people truly are ill-suited for this and they should never do it again. And some people really were um, victims of misfortune rather than, than their own mistakes. But most, most of the time, it's a mix of all that and people in the middle. And it takes some reflection. It takes some distance um, healing. And, and, the, and the entrepreneurs who do this well, I think, alternate between ruminating, um, you know, just can't get your mind off of it, and finding something to distract them, you know, exercise, yoga, um, some new project, something like that. And just going back and forth between the two is actually a good way to heal when you get some distance, then you can sort of start to try to make sense of what happened, the lessons of experience. And um, and, and, and that takes an open mind um, and it takes a little bit of distance from the event. And then the question is, uh, you know, and, and creating a brand. Um, this is this is like the, the perfect um, title for what the entrepreneur has at this stage. How do you position yourself for what comes next? How, how do you take your personal brand and um, and a lot of entre failed entrepreneurs will be worried about the stigma of failure. And, you know, I'd say um, it's real. It's especially real um, outside the U.S. in certain countries. I mean, the U.K. looks a lot like us. Um, um, but if you're in Japan or Germany, um, um, France, a place like that, uh, like a failed entrepreneur, um, there's a lot of stigma. In a lot of places, um, there's much more personal liability. You know, we don't have the bankruptcy laws that we have that, that protect an entrepreneur personally. Um, so, so the key thing is like when you're trying to figure out if you should do it again, first sort of reflection on what you're good at and what you're bad at and what you've learned from the experience. And then should I do it again? Do I have a good idea? Will I work with co-founders differently the next time? Will I do more research next time, avoid the false positives and the false starts? And, um, you know, what, what I think from the conversations I've had with entrepreneurs, the ones who can explain clearly what happened, why it happened, and what they learned from it are, are actually really valued um, in whatever they do next, whether they're trying to be an entrepreneur again and, and attracting a team or raising money, or whether they're going to work in a bigger company. And, and um, like somebody who had that general management experience, sort of conceiving a thing, building the thing, recruiting the team, covering all the functions, super valuable to existing organizations. So, you know, the, 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 um, the entrepreneurs I've studied, by and large, really bounce back well. Um, not everybody. I mean, the, the more you're in the middle, opposed to the extremes. 
Yeah, this is a good point because we've all seen the the famous entrepreneurs that have bounced back. I mean, all these people that we look at as the, the celebrity entrepreneurs, if you will, they've all had multiple failures. But you're, like you're saying, it's a matter of self-reflecting properly and then having courage to get yourself back out there. And you become even more valuable in many cases. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And Tom, this has been such a fun conversation. At the end of your book, you have a section that's a conclusion, and it's a letter that you wrote to first-time founders. I'd love if you give us one final word of wisdom or advice that's from that letter. Yeah. Um, so um, the, the, the notion is, here's first-time founder, and um, what advice do we have? If, if, we've, if we've studied entrepreneurial failure, what advice do we have? And the, the advice I had for them is... Um, there is a lot of advice out there for entrepreneurs. A lot of, I would call it conventional wisdom. Um, doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, most of it's right. And um, it's, it's the things you hear all the time as an entrepreneur, be gritty, um, be persistent, grow. Um, that's what entrepreneurs do, grow. Um, and and um, uh, focus, like every, everybody wants the entrepreneur to focus. And, and what I realized is that's good advice most of the time, but if you just follow it blindly, um, th then uh, it's actually, you, can, you can actually fall prey to some of these failure patterns I've talked about, bad bedfellows, um, false positives, false starts, right? If, you wanna, if you're desperate to grow, you're, you're gonna fall victim to the false start because you're gonna build the thing and launch the thing before you've really figured out if it's the right thing. So, th so that's the... Um, that, that's the advice I'd have for entrepreneurs that's in the letter, which is uh, understand the conventional wisdom, listen to it, but don't follow it blindly. Um, basically, stop and pause. And um, especially for decisions, um, you, you know, entrepreneurs like to trust their gut instinct and, and, and entrepreneurs take great pride in gut instinct. And that's there's value to that. But some of these decisions um, you can't trust your gut because your gut is racked by strong emotion that's going to cloud your brain, your senses. And you really need to not um, follow your gut instinct. You need to sleep on this, maybe two nights, right? And, and talk to a lot of people you trust who understand you and, um, and don't follow the, the conventional wisdom too blindly, right? So slow down your thinking. Uh, and really take take time to make um, the right decision. And I think that'll help avoid a lot of the failure patterns. Tom, that's a lot of wisdom right there. Thank you so much for ending it that way. And thank you so much for being a guest and for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That was great fun. Thanks so much. I greatly appreciate how Tom included so many relevant stories to accompany each of the three points that he shared with us today. If any of these three points really stood out to you as something that might be happening in your business, I encourage you to grab a copy of this book so you can better understand how to overcome the potential failure. By doing this, you're helping to ensure that your business is part of the 25% success stories instead of the 75% failures. Tom, thank you again for being a guest and sharing your vast experience and research with us today. To pick up a copy of Tom Eisenman's book, Why Startups Fail, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 090. Thank you as always for listening, and I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week. Music.